Well, good morning, church. Thank you, Pastor Fred, not only for the opportunity to speak, but it's just kind of cool that this day landed on, uh, it's not like we planned this, but this, this day of me uh, kind of standing in the pulpit form landed on the same day that I was able to dedicate uh, uh, our youngest child, Andrew. So it's just kind of a cool thing. And um, I don't take opportunities like this lightly. Uh, this is something that I'm sure uh, you all could understand is, is something that should never be taken lightly, which is opening God's word and, and conveying a message to his people. And so in my preparation to this, I just want to thank again, Fred, for me being able to bounce certain ideas off of him. And also for my wife who just puts up with me when I study for a sermon or anytime I'm going to give a talk because she has to listen to it uh, pretty much nonstop until I speak. And then afterwards, I still talk about it. So uh, just thank you for the patience of my wife. But anyway, uh, we are in John chapter 7 this morning. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there. If you don't have a Bible or if you want to follow along on your phone, it will also be on the screen. We are going to be in John chapter 7. Now, I love this entire uh, chapter. It is very long. I think it's like 50, 52 verses, something like that. I wanted to just preach the whole chapter because it's like, where do I break? But I'm not going to do that. Uh, you're welcome. I'm going to focus on the first half of the chapter. Uh, so we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 24 this morning. What I'm going to do is I'll read the passage, we'll pray, and then we'll jump into the message. So John chapter 7, verses 1 through 24. The Bible says this, after this, Jesus traveled in Galilee since he did not want to travel in Judea because the Jews were trying to kill him. The Jewish festival of shelters was near, so his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples can see your works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he's seeking public recognition. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus then told them, my time has not yet arrived, but your time is always at hand. The world cannot hate you, but it does hate me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Go up to the festival yourselves. I'm not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. And after he had said these things, he stayed in Galilee. After this, his brothers had gone up to the festival, and then he also went up, not openly, but secretly. The Jews were looking for him at the festival and saying, where is he? And there was a lot of murmuring about him among the crowd. Some were saying, he's a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he is deceiving the people. Still, nobody was talking publicly about him for fear of the Jews. When the festival was already half over, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. And then the Jews were amazed and said, how is this man so learned since he hasn't been trained? Jesus answered them, my teaching isn't mine, but it's from the one who sent me. If anyone wants to do his will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own. The one who speaks on his own seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Didn't Moses give you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? You have a demon, the crowd responded. Who's trying to kill you? I performed one work, and you were all amazed, Jesus answered. This is why Moses has given you circumcision, that it not comes from, that not, not that it comes from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses won't be broken, are you angry at me because I made a man entirely well on the Sabbath? Stop judging according to outward appearances, rather judge according to righteous judgment. Would you pray with me this morning? God, we love you. 
We thank you so much for this church. We thank you for uh, how this church is Bible-centered, God. And, and as we open your word this morning, I just pray that we would just uh, center our hearts and our minds around this passage, Lord. I pray that as I'm up here, people would not see me, but that you would just remove me from this stage, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would speak through me, that I would speak truth and life, God, that these words would pierce the hearts of those listening, uh, that they would be transformative, that people would leave here with a better understanding of who you are, uh, what it is that you came to accomplish here on earth, and what it is that you require of us, God. And I just thank you so much for this opportunity. I pray that you would receive all glory, honor, and praise from it. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, so there were major feasts during, uh, that, that took place to honor God and his provisions that we read about through all the different gospel accounts, right? It's, it's here, though, we're reading about the Feast of Tabernacles. So again, there's Feast of Passover, and, 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 and um, the whole point of it was to center our minds and our focus and our worship towards God. But the Feast of the Tabernacle also referred to, if in some Bibles it says the Feast of Shelters or Booths, what this was, was this was a remembrance celebration of how God led the Hebrew children through the desert for the 40 years that they wandered. He provided for them. We learned a little bit about this time in the wilderness a few weeks ago. If you remember the, the Come Hungry sermon where Pastor Fred highlighted this particular passage in Exodus 16, manna from heaven uh, uh, and and. All of that, I'm not going to recap any of that, so if you missed that, go and check that out. But the people of God were disobedient time and time again, and that disobedience led to that particular generation not being able to enter the promised land. This led to them then wandering in the desert for 40 years, and even still, God was faithful to them. So during this particular festival, what would typically happen is the Jews would build and live in booths or tents near the temple meeting in Jerusalem for the duration of the event. But in Jesus's day and age, what they would do is they would put them on their roofs or right outside of their homes, and it would, they would just stay in there for, for the duration of the event. This festival, again, was a reminder of their ancestors who lived in these tents or these booths or these shelters as they wandered in the desert all those years. So it's reflective. Funny enough, the last time I actually preached, Jesus was in Jerusalem celebrating another feast, the Feast of Passover. And I had mentioned then, I don't know if you remember, but if you were a Jewish man, specifically a man living within 15 miles or so of Jerusalem, and there was a festival, a celebration, Passover, uh, the festival of shelters, tabernacles, whatever, you go. It's not really optional. It's a requirement now, Jerusalem's day-to-day -day population, on average, don't know this for certain, but on average, the numbers they throw around is about, it hovers between 80 to 100,000 people. But during festivals, however, with as many people that would travel in for these events, there could have been anywhere from 500,000 to a million people there. So it's packed. There's so many people here to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And it's at this point in time it's kind of been a minute since Jesus was in Jerusalem, and the last time he was there, he didn't exactly leave a good impression on the people. Were there signs and miracles? Absolutely. Remember, in the temple, there were signs and wonders, things uh, that were pointing to his messianic status. Uh, he healed the paralyzed man. We'll actually reference that later in John chapter 5. Jesus continued to baptize people. We learn about that as well. 
But was everyone happy about what was going on with Jesus' ministry? Absolutely not. In fact, the religious leaders had set out and were very vocal about their intent to kill Jesus. So where is he now? Well, he resides up in the northern part of Israel known as Galilee. So in our context, let's imagine Jerusalem is like Pittsburgh, and he's up in Slatelik in the boondocks. You know, he's out there in the middle of nowhere, okay? I believe Fred mentioned it two weeks ago, and we saw an example of it just this past week. But at this point in Jesus' ministry, for some reason or another, he, this is, he's at a point where he's starting to push back the multitudes. He's starting to kind of seclude himself and his disciples from the multitude. And for our, from our perspective, at least from mine, it seems like he's laying low, so to speak. Remember, there have been many times so far in his public ministry where he performed great miracles, and because of this, the people were ready to crown him their king right then and there. This, this is the Messiah. This is the person. This is the, their view of him was military-minded, specifically after the feeding of the 5,000. It was, these are the signs we were to be looking for. This is the Messiah. He's here to overthrow the oppressor. But Jesus knew it was not his time yet, so he secludes himself. See, the people wanted all the benefits of running with Jesus, but they did not want Jesus himself. We saw how quickly that ended last week, didn't we? If you missed it, that was the, the, the famous passage where Jesus says, you know, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, right? And people were like, hold up. Some harsh things were said. Some divisive things were said. Some... Some interesting things were said, and because of that, well, I mean, people were continuing to follow him throughout Galilee, but Jesus turned a lot of them off when he shifted the focus off of himself, and he kind of put it then on the people and what they must do, right? Eat my flesh, drink my blood. The result? We learned many of them left, right? If you missed that passage or that, that message, I, I really recommend you go back and listen to it. Fred did an excellent job, uh, and... and one of, the, one of my favorite passages in all the Bible, but many of them left. So he's kind of on his own at this point, except the 12. Remember, Jesus says, you don't want to go away too, do you? And Peter's response was, to whom will we go, Jesus? You have the words of eternal life. Not only that, we have to remember during this time that there were a lot of people, religious leaders specifically, that were seeking to kill Jesus for his words. We learned that last week. And with that, it's about to go down. Okay? So with that, uh, my title of the sermon this morning is, Are You For Real, Jesus? And the reason for that is I'm seeing three different issues in our particular passage that people, two, are with his own biological family, and the others is with the, the Jewish population as a whole. These, these issues that people have with Jesus, and I want to derive those from the text, and then I want to offer you one solution. So let's jump into the first point. If you're taking notes on the handout or if you just like to take notes in general, the first point is this. If you are for real, Jesus, you would let everyone see your works publicly. Again, verses 1 through 5 says, After this, Jesus traveled in Galilee, since he did not want to travel in Judea, because the Jews were trying to kill him. The Jewish festival of shelters was near, so his brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, so that your disciples can see your works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he's seeking public recognition. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. In verse 3, we see Jesus' own brothers having dialogue with him about what he's been up to. 
Remember, there's a massive festival happening in Jerusalem, and Jesus isn't there. There's potentially a million people there, and Jesus is hanging out in the boondocks. What are you doing? This isn't where the people are. Go down to Jerusalem. Go to where the crowds are. Come on, people need to see your good works, Jesus. Ironically, these are the same works that people have witnessed time and time again, and they still missed him anyway. Quite frankly, his, his brothers seem to be calling him out. Go do miracles. Win those people back who you've offended. Never, the, never mind the fact that some of them want him dead. You can do it. We know you can. Like it or not, you're a public figure, Jesus. Quit hiding. If you're really that guy, go prove it. But again, as we learned these past few weeks, the multitudes that were following Jesus were not actually interested in him. No, they were only interested in the temporary pleasures of following this miracle worker who would heal them and give them something to eat. I think the saddest part about these verses is in verse 5. His own brothers. Remember, Jesus had siblings, right? Mary and Joseph had other kids after Jesus. His own brothers, his own flesh and blood that he grew up with didn't believe in him either. I mean, his own brothers don't even buy into his status, right? I mean, we might expect, or okay, I'm not going to say we. I at least expect that throughout Jesus' childhood, right, there would be some indications of greatness. Could you imagine growing up with Jesus as your brother? Bath time, and he's like skipping across the water. Like, I'm not, you know, there had to be something, right? He's a bit different. We might presume, remember, there was no sin in him, so he never sinned as a child. I'm trying to imagine that for a second. We might presume that there would be signs of what was to come. Anything? Apparently not. Here's the thing, though. They believed something about him, but they didn't believe he was God. The point here is not all belief in Jesus is saving belief. That's a hard pill to swallow. So I feel like I'm going to beat a dead horse here, but John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31 is the purpose statement for the gospel that we're in. John himself is very clear. Up until this point, if you missed it, here's the purpose for why I'm, I just wrote everything I just wrote 19 chapters prior. He says this, uh, John 20, verses 30 to 31 says this, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these accounts are written so that you may believe. No, that's not what it says. That you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So again, Jesus, if you're for real, you would let everyone see your works publicly, right? So that we may believe. Point number two this morning. If you're for real, Jesus, you wouldn't say those harsh things anymore. Verses six through nine, let's look at them. Jesus told them, my time has not yet arrived, but your time is always at hand. The world cannot hate you, but it does hate me because I testify about it. Well, what does he testify about it? That its works are evil. Go up to the festival yourselves. I'm not going because my time has not fully come. And after these, he said these things, he stayed in Galilee. There's two things I want to point out about these verses. One, and again, I, I just said those harsh things. So I'll talk about his message in a second. So his message, but also his timing. Jesus' timing here. So let's focus on the timing first. He says, my time has not yet arrived. 
But then he also says, but your time is always at hand. Jesus is making a direct comparison to how he and God operate versus how we as human beings operate. And newsflash, we're not on the same time schedule. My time has not yet arrived, referring to his time to be put on trial and ultimately sentenced to death, the purpose that he came to earth to do. He knows his purpose here on earth is part of a bigger plan, a plan that his own brothers don't even understand. But he says, your time is always at hand, referring to the fact that we as human beings, his brothers that he was speaking to specifically, we only know how to operate on the sense of the here and now. That's why our time is always at hand. It's always about right now. What's important this second, this minute? Remember, we're finite beings though. God is not, God is infinite. Isaiah 55 verses eight and nine says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts and your ways are not my ways. This is the Lord's declaration, right? This is God talking. For as heaven is higher than earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thought, your thoughts. How about 2 Peter verse three, or, or chapter three, verse eight. He says, dear friends, don't overlook this one fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like one day. He's specifically talking about the Lord's return there, but it still applies. What seems like an eternity to us may seem like a day to God. God operates on a different time schedule, and God's timing is ultimately according to his own plan. Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5, says this. In this passage, at the end of chapter 3, uh, Paul, writing to the church in Galatia, uh, starts talking about the idea of being sons and heirs. So whenever you're in Christ, you're no longer a slave, you're an, a co-heir with Christ. But he, he's making this statement, and in chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, he says this. He says, when the time came to completion... God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons. God didn't just roll the dice one day and say, aha, now I'll send Jesus. I guess uh, all the stars aligned perfectly. Now, I guess I'll do it now. We know from scripture that is not the case. One of the most famous sermons in Peter's life, at least, that we know about is in Acts chapter 2, where thousands upon thousands of people came to know Christ after his declaration. And in Acts 2, verses 22 to 24, he says this, fellow Israelites, listen to these words. And it's funny, this actually pertains to everything we're talking about right now, so it kind of works. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. You already know that, right? Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you use lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. God raised him up, ending the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. Revelation 13, 8 says this, all those who live on earth will worship it. What is it? The beast that comes out of the sea. We're not getting into any of that. This is the important part. Everyone whose name was not written in the book of life of the lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. What? So God knew about this from the foundation of the world? We hadn't sinned yet. What are you talking about? I think, so there's this uh, uh, specific version of the Bible called the Blue Letter Bible. Take it or leave it. Uh, the Blue Letter Bible, all the passages in the Old Scripture or Old Testament that talk about Jesus are written in blue letters. So like the whole thing should be written in blue letters. But either way, uh, there's commentary in it by Don Stewart, and it summarizes this point perfectly. I think he said it better than I could. So 
This is what he has to say about it. He says, the death of Jesus Christ was not a spontaneous tragedy or historical mistake. It was part of a predetermined plot by the religious leaders of Jesus' day to put him to death. Absolutely. They had attempted to kill him in Nazareth. The high priest Caiaphas predicted the necessity of Jesus' death. They were constantly looking for a convenient time to kill him. Oh, King Herod also wanted him dead as well. The death of Christ was in the predetermined program of God, planned before the foundation of the world. It's a crucial element in God's eternal plan to save humanity from their sins. It was not just an isolated historical event. And praise God for that. It's incredible to think about that this was his plan all along. Thank God, our, uh, thank God literally that God is not reactionary to our mistakes. That he has a plan and that he will execute that plan. And he executed that plan from the foundation of the world. So that's Jesus' timing, but I want to focus in on Jesus' message, the harsh stuff, right? Because if Jesus was for real, he wouldn't say this kind of stuff anymore. He says, the world cannot hate you, but it does hate me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Remember, who's Jesus responding to here? His brothers and what they said to him back in verses 3 and 4. They said, leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples can see your works that you are doing. Show yourself to the world. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. No one does anything in secret while he's seeking public recognition. I had to pause here and really ask myself, can we really fault his brothers here for asking this question? Like, if I knew Jesus and the cool things that he was doing, healing people and making blind people see and making the lame walk and multiplying bread and fish. Wouldn't you want him to keep doing that stuff? Because it seems like when he opens his mouth, people get upset. But when he just does cool stuff, everybody follows him. So in my mind, it's like, just shut up and do cool things, right? The problem here is that they're only focusing on what Jesus can do. (sighs) Jesus is not a dog and he's not a puppet. So don't make him out to be one. Jesus, just do the cool stuff. Just do what I want you to do because that's what attracts people. Go back to saying the nice stuff. Go back to doing the good stuff. Sounds a lot like the American church today, sadly. Just preach the good stuff. Just preach what makes me feel good. Preach what gets me fed. Water it down. Spood feed me, Jesus. It's not enough to just preach the good stuff. Rather, it's our job to preach the good news, the gospel. And the gospel is not nice if you really think about it. I mean, it's morbid, it's exclusive, it's scary. We learned last week it's very divisive. But it's life-giving, it's saving, it's wonderful, it's divine. Christ died on the cross for your sins. He died for your sins. That's what we say to people, right? He died on the cross. The cross isn't pretty. We do like to doll up the cross, and we like to hang crucifixes or wear crosses around our neck. And I'm not saying any of that is bad in its place, but we like to doll up the cross. There's nothing nice about the cross until you know the Christ that hung from it. Your sin and my sin required a sacrifice. God's one and only son, and the only way, the only way we gain access to the salvation that his death and resurrection offers is by grace through faith, and not by what we do, but by what he ultimately did. We learned about this last week in John 6. I just want to read a couple verses from last week. 
Jesus says in verse 60 to 65, he says, Therefore, many of his disciples heard this, heard what? Heard him say the things like, eat my flesh, drink my blood, the, the really harsh stuff. They said, this teaching is hard. Who can accept it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, asked them, does this offend you? Then what if you were to observe the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? The Spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh doesn't help at all. No, the words I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some among you who don't believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe and the one who would betray him. He said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. You see, it's Son, Spirit, and Father. It's the triune Godhead at work. And the world doesn't want that. Even as awesome as that sounds, the world doesn't want that. Why? Because they want to control it. We want to control it. We want to control our, our fate, our eternal destiny, so to speak. Where we're going to end up. We can do it. God, there's no need for a sacrifice. Let's just all get along, hold hands, sing kumbaya, and we'll all be fine, right? There's this movement right now, movement, it's this word that everybody keeps using right now called unity. We seem to unify as a nation. And yeah, I'm all for it. Listen, I think that's great if you want to unify. But the problem is, is we think that that's all we need. It's just, we can just muster up enough uh, whatever's in ourselves to unify. But Jesus himself says, the spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh doesn't help at all. So we can try all we want, but we'll never truly unify unless we unify around the one who gives life, Jesus Christ. Listen, someone has to pay the price for sin. And God decided that he would do it. The world cannot hate you, but it does hate me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Its works are evil? Does he specify what kind of works? He didn't say that they're evil works or they're bad works, right? He just said that their works are evil in general. Okay, so hear me out. Evil works are just that. They're evil. That's simple to understand. Someone does something bad, it's evil. Okay, but what about good works? Are good works evil, Jesus? Or let's say that he said, uh, the world cannot hate you, but it does hate me because I testify about it, that it's good works are evil. Well, let's dive into that. The world's good works aren't evil because they're in and of themselves plain evil, right? Rather, they deceive us into thinking we can do it all on our own. I'm a good person. I do a lot of good in this world. My good, it outweighs the bad, right? I'm better than the next guy. Therefore, I don't need a savior because I'm good enough. We understand that in James, I'll say this, that in James, that faith without works is dead. That's a very popular passage in, in uh, the book of James. I just want you to understand that when he says that, he's not contradicting Paul. There's a lot of people like to pit scripture against one another. Uh, what he's saying is that the good works fall, that follow after salvation in Christ, there should be works. There should be a transforming work, okay? But in regards to the moment of salvation, the Bible is clear, Complete faith in who Jesus is and what he did through his death and resurrection is the only way to be saved. Did you hear me? Complete faith in who Jesus is and what he ultimately did. Who can know the way? One of his disciples asked. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
So I'm going to use an example here, and I don't want to offend anybody, but this is the per first person that talked in, popped into my head that is the walking example of good works. Let's use Mother Teresa as an example, right? So Mother Teresa was a wonderful person. If you've ever read anything about her, like literally, I don't think there was a single day in her life where there wasn't a good work just flowing out of her, right? But let me just say this for the record. I didn't know her, nor do I know anyone's place in regards to the sal like salvation. That's between each of us as individuals and of God. But the point is this. If someone is as, even as wonderful as Mother Teresa, or you pick someone in your own life, someone that you think is the epitome of good works, if someone like that were to believe that their good works were enough to save them, they're deceived. Jesus Christ alone is the only one who can save us by, by, by what he did. That's a hard pill to swallow. This is harsh stuff that Jesus is starting to talk about, and we don't like it. So if Jesus was for real, he wouldn't say this kind of stuff, right? Well, let's move on to point number three. So we saw that if Jesus was for real, he would let people see his works publicly. He also would just kind of stop saying the harsh stuff. But point number three this morning, if you were for real, Jesus, we would know exactly who you are. Would there really be any question if this dude was for real, there would be no like, well, he's a good man. He's deceiving us. No, people would just know exactly who he is, right? Let's reread a couple of verses here. It says, after this, his brothers, or after his brothers, I'm sorry, had gone up to the festival, then he also went up. We're in uh, verse 10 here. Not openly, but secretly. The Jews were looking for him at the festival and saying, where is he? And there was a lot of murmuring about him among the crowd. Some were saying he's a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he's deceiving the people. Still, nobody was talking about him publicly for fear of the Jews. And when the festival was already half over, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. Then the Jews were amazed and said, how is this man so learned since he hasn't been trained? Jesus answered them, my teaching isn't mine, but from the one who sent me. If anyone wants to do his will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own. The one who speaks on his own seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. I'm going to stop there because then he starts to get into the law. Uh, we'll get there in a second. So let me clarify something, too, before we move on, because this kind of tripped me up a little bit. Did Jesus contradict himself here? Because back in a couple, back a few verses, he told his brothers, you go up to the festival, I'm not going. And then he went. So did Jesus lie? <gasps> no, he didn't. He, uh, he says he won't go to Jerusalem, and then he does. That seems odd, but his statements, I feel, are very consistent. Um, his brothers are not simply encouraging to, to go to the festival to just go. No, they're encouraging him to go and, like, kick the doors in and make a show, right? Like, hey, Jesus is here. Time to drop some signs and miracles on you. This Jesus does not do. And when he does finally make his presence in Jerusalem known, it's not as this big man on campus conquering king. No, it's as a quiet teacher in verse 14. He shows up to the temple and he just starts to teach. So it's consistent. But it's in these verses that we get to the heart of the passage, the real issue at hand, the question that's on everybody's mind. Who is this Jesus? Is he good? Is he bad? Is he deceiving people? Is he genuine? Remember, not even his own brothers knew. You have some people claiming he's a good guy while others saying he's deceiving people. Even though there are murmurs of Jesus happening throughout the festival, people were quiet about it. It's on the DL. 
There's clearly tension surrounding Jesus and his ministry. Remember, the religious leaders are out to kill him. So if anybody is caught talking about him, saying he's a good guy, they might be like, well, that's one of his followers. Kill them too. There are three things I would like to highlight under this point about the Jews' view on slash their issues with Jesus' identity. And Jesus addresses all three of these. First, that he's uneducated. Verses 14 and 15. When the festival was already half over, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. Then the Jews were amazed and said, how is this man so learned since he hasn't been trained? He never studied under a rabbi. That was the traditional way of doing things. So then how does he know so much? How, does, how is this man so learned since he hasn't been trained? The NET Bible, actually, the NET Bible, if you don't have one, there's, one, there's a option for it on your phone. Get it. It's great. The NET Bible has a helpful commentary next to this verse that explains why this question is so significant and important. Owen, oh, be quiet, please. <laughs> The implication here, I'm used to this, okay. The implication here, this is the quote from the Net Bible Commentary. The implication here is not that Jesus never went to school. In all probability, he did attend a local synagogue when he was a youth, right? That would be typical for a Jewish boy. But that he was not a disciple of a particular rabbi and had not had formal or advanced instruction under that rabbi. Jesus didn't have a college degree in the Bible, in, in the law, Right? Typically, when one would teach as Jesus did, what they would often do is they would quote the rabbi that they studied under. Jesus never does this. What does he do? He speaks with an authority given by someone greater. But the religious leaders and the Jewish people in general would just chalk these teachings up as, yeah, he seems to know a lot, but he's, he's not learned. He's not trained. So do we really take what he has to say as fact? It's a bit ironic, don't you think? Think about it. Imagine thinking that Jesus doesn't know what he's talking about anytime he spoke up, especially in the temple, especially concerning the things of God. That's kind of funny. It's a little awkward. Jesus, you don't know nothing about the law, even though you wrote it. Okay, so uh, anybody here know who Tony Hawk is? Did someone say no? Oh, yeah, okay. I was like, oh. No, okay, so Tony Hawk, like, profound skateboarder, probably changed the this skateboarding world back in the 80s. Whenever he hit the scene, skated for Team Peralta. He created Birdhouse. He also had a bunch of video games that came out. So Tony Hawk does this funny thing on his Twitter account where he'll tweet about stuff, like events that happen to him when he runs into people in public and they don't recognize him. And it's really funny the way that they talk to him. I put a couple of his tweets up on the screen, so you, and I want to read them to you if that's cool, because I think they're funny. So the first one, there's a woman on a plane re retrieving her luggage in the overhead. Whose skateboard is this? It's blocking my bag. Tony Hawk says, that's mine. You can pass it here. It's yours. You ride it? Yes. Are you any good at it? Sometimes. The woman cackles maniacally in the next plane. <laughs> you any good at it? No, a little bit. What, what about the next one? TSA agent checking my ID. Hawk, <laughs> like that skateboarder Tony Hawk. Exactly. Cool, I wonder what he's up to these days. This. <laughs> That's so awkward. Next, TSA agent staring intently. I'm trying to figure out who you look like before checking your ID. Okay. That cyclist Armstrong. That ain't Lance Armstrong. He's right. Oh, you look like that skateboarder. <laughs> Same last two name, crazy. <laughs> crazy. This last one's my favorite. Guy at a restaurant, are you famous? I think that depends on who you ask. 
Anyone ever tell you you look like Tom Brady? <laughs> Never. Like, imagine running into someone who's so profound, especially the first one, right? Where it's like, whose skateboard is this? You any good at it? Right? That's like saying to Jesus, like, Jesus, you don't know what you're talking about. The irony here is that in these verses is that they claim that Jesus hasn't been trained. He's never had formal instruction. He's uneducated. Do you even know what you're doing, bro? You know how to use that thing? They treated him as an untaught, unlearned person without the formal qualifications to be a teacher. But little did they know that this was the word made flesh. The pre-existent logos. Jesus Christ is wisdom personified. The very thing they claimed he wasn't educated properly on is the very thing that he is. It's incredible. They don't know him, and they definitely don't believe in him. So not only that he's uneducated, but he's self-seeking. Jesus answered that my teaching isn't mine, but from the one who sent me. If anyone wants to do his will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own. The one who speaks on his own seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. So clearly, if Jesus isn't teaching formally as one would, he must be doing it for selfish reasons. This guy's just in it for himself, trying to gain a following, right? Again, it's a bit ironic considering that that's all the religious leaders of the day and age were interested in was public recognition, and yet the Jewish people were accusing Jesus of this. He's just saying all this thing to draw attention to himself, to get a good following. And Jesus replies brilliantly. He says, my teaching isn't mine, but from the one who sent me. If anyone wants to do his will, he'll know whether my teaching, whether this teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own. So if you were truly following God's will, you would know that this is not my message, but God's. Not only that, I seek to glorify God and to accomplish his will in all of this and all I say and do. So how is it that I'm all about just me exactly when this is about God's work? Not only that he's self-seeking, that he doesn't teach, nor does he, maybe not that he doesn't teach, he doesn't really follow the law that he teaches, right? So Jesus then goes, he seems to get real awkward here for a minute, but Jesus all of a sudden goes on a tangent about the law and circumcision, so I want to read these back to you, and, and, and I'll kind of tie, tie the loose ends up. He says, didn't Moses give you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why are you trying to kill me? You have a demon, the crowd responded. Who's trying to kill you? I performed one work, and you were all amazed, Jesus answered. This is why Moses has given you circumcision. Not that it comes from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses won't be broken, are you angry at me because I made a man entirely well on the Sabbath? Stop judging according to appearances. Rather, judge according to righteous judgment. And since we're on the subject of you accusing me of being uneducated, unlearned to teach the law, you yourselves don't even keep the law. You know, he brings out the big guns. He goes back to the original 10 commandments. Besides Jesus wept, Exodus 20 verses 13 is, is the, verse 13 is the easiest uh, verse to memorize in the Bible. And it says this, do not murder. That's one of the 10 commandments, right? You're supposed to follow that, right? And yet you're trying to kill me? You don't even follow the law. What a response they give to him. You have a demon, they responded. Who's trying to kill you? Basically, they're saying when they would say they accuse him of having a demon, what they're essentially saying in our today's culture is, you're crazy, bro. A bit paranoid. Like, to be a little fair, 
a lot of the people in attendance at this festival, if they had come from surrounding regions, they might be ignorant to what's been going on with Jesus. But a lot of people just chalk him up as being crazy anyway. Jesus, without skipping a beat, hits back. He says, I performed one work and you were all amazed. This is in reference to the last public miracle in Jerusalem recorded by John in John 5 verses 1 through 9 about the paralytic man. This is why Moses has given you circumcision. So then he goes into this tangent about circumcision. Okay, that's kind of out of left field. But without going into detail about circumcision, you're welcome. The Bible says this. Abraham was the first Jewish man to practice circumcision, right? So this ritual, it wasn't just to do it for funsies, okay? It was, it was symbolic. It was a visible, permanent, external sign of the relationship between God and his people, the Israelites. So according to tradition, a male child, eight days after it was born, was to be circumcised. Genesis 17 talks about this. This was a command then reiterated and given to Moses when under the law. Leviticus 12.3 says that. There would be times then, mathematically speaking, that a baby would be born, and then the eighth day they would need to be circumcised. That would land on the Sabbath. Well, work's not supposed to be done on the Sabbath, right? So Jesus points out that the Pharisees see this act as necessary to follow the law of Moses. Jesus' argument is perfect. You allow this procedure to happen on the Sabbath, but I make someone whole and I break it? His point here is hypocrisy. If breaking the Sabbath is okay to perform a minor ritual, why did the Pharisees get so uptight and upset when Jesus healed a man who had been paralyzed for years? You would think they would be ecstatic about that. It's because they're being shallow and careless in their judgment. That's why Jesus ends by saying, stop judging according to outward appearances, rather judge according to righteous judgment. And that's where I want to land as we wrap up this morning. As you can see, there are a lot of issues with, that these people have with Jesus. His brothers, the Jewish people as a whole, they have, they have issues with his methods, his message, his education, his motives, his practices. As we approach the end of the sermon, I want to point out a couple of things that, and then we'll be done. The issues that we're seeing in this entire passage, I feel can be summarized by this simple statement, if I could be so crass, put up or shut up. So the first two points of, his sermon, uh, of the sermon were issues that Jesus' brother had with him. In more or less words, they just wanted Jesus to put up. Show off, do something. Go down there, do more works. Make yourself known. As we approach the end of the, uh, oh, I'm sorry, um, but as we see here, the, uh, the issue that the religious leaders, as well as many of the Jews had with Jesus, is that they just wanted him to shut up. Just stop talking, sit down, be quiet, stop saying these things. In their own minds, Jesus is divisive, and they do not like that. But if we're being honest, of course he's divisive. Of course he is. There's no middle ground with Jesus. He doesn't tolerate half, partial, lukewarm, conditional belief. Trust and believe in me and have life or don't. It's that simple. The crowd, as well as Jesus' own brother, liked when he was doing the fun part of ministry, the healing, giving them food, talking about peace and love. But now that Jesus is starting to bring up death, his blood being poured out, sin, 
Well, they don't want that. Sadly, this seems to be true in a lot of churches today. We don't like to focus on the, har- uh, focus on the harsh topics. Sin and death, Jesus' blood being spilt. I mean, that's not the best way to get people to come to your church, let alone keep them engaged. Imagine it being your first time in church and we're reading a passage where Jesus is like, eat my flesh and drink my blood. It's like, I'm not going to that church anymore. No, let's give them a positive message that helps them walk away feeling encouraged and feeling good about themselves. You know, we're actually commanded by Jesus to do the former. Last week we celebrated communion, did we not? What is communion all about? One of the, the, the things that we say in communion as we are about to partake in the wafer and the juice is do this in remembrance of me. In remembrance of what? That my blood poured out for you? That my body will be broken for you? Is that not positive though in a way? It's not when we're focused on ourselves. Well, that, doesn't sound, that doesn't sound good. But when we're focused on Jesus and saving work that he came here to do, it's beautiful. So we've seen the issues with Jesus, but what's the solution? This is the last point on, on your handout. The solution is this. When you believe in who Jesus is, the harshness of his message turns to beauty and his way of doing things will not trouble you. Why? Because you believe and trust the source. Jesus is for real. Unless you believe him, the person, the identity of Jesus, you'll never accept or believe his ways or his message. And notice I didn't say that when you believe in Jesus, you'll understand his way of doing things all the time. I know I don't. There are still times in my life where I definitely question God's ways and his methods and his timing especially. But ultimately, I'm not troubled. See? That's the key. Why? Because Jesus is God, and I believe that. I know that, and I want you all to know that and believe that as well. Worship team can come up. I just want to ask a couple questions this morning as I close. Just where are you with Jesus this morning? Are any of these issues kind of sitting with you? Are, are, they, are they relatable? You know, Jesus, if, if, if you were for real, you would let the public see your good works. You would just be doing good things all the time. Miracles would always happen because then more people would believe in you, right? Are you stuck on his ways of doing things in and throughout your own personal life? Maybe are you suffering hurt? Maybe are you being stretched in ways that make you feel uncomfortable? Is there something about his message that just doesn't quite sit right with you? Therefore, you don't fully trust him. We just heard a message last week that It's a tough pill to swallow. My encouragement and my challenge to you this morning is this. Forget his methods and forget his his teachings for just a second. I'm not saying they're not important. Don't hear me say that. Just forget. I just want to look at this fact. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the only Savior of the world. Do you truly believe that? Because that's the starting point. That's where it all begins. That is where salvation lies. In the identity of Jesus Christ being who he claims to be. Ask God to give you the faith to believe that with all your heart this morning. When you believe in who Jesus is, the harshness of his message will turn to beauty. And his way of doing things will not trouble you anymore. Why? 
because you believe and you trust the source. And Jesus is for real. Do you pray with me this morning? God, we love you. And we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for this moment of just gathering around your word. God, I pray that even with my uh, feeble words and me just tripping over myself and getting distracted here and there, Lord, that somehow your spirit spoke through me and, and landed uh, in the hearts of those who sat under me this morning. God, I pray that your word as it is would, would pierce our hearts, would be transformative, God, that people here would really think about that question. Do we really believe that you're for real? God, help us to just quiet our hearts now, just to reflect on that as we worship, Lord. I just pray that we would just really center in on this fact that you are who you say you are. And I pray that that would transform our lives for the better. God, we love you. We praise you. It's in Jesus' name I pray.